0: Hi everyone! On today's episode of Aminder, we'll be going over the latest research on cognitive and behavioral changes in Alzheimer's disease, with papers published in January 2023. We've got a whole variety of studies as per usual, spanning from sensory processing, to sleep, and even to depressive symptoms. Sit tight, and we'll begin shortly. Welcome to Aminder! a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Hello again. Most of you probably recognize my voice by now, but my name is Judy and I'll be your host for today's episode on Cognitive and Behavioral Changes in Alzheimer's Disease. Before we get started, let's quickly go over our usual housekeeping items. For those of you joining us for the first time, here at Aminder, we summarize the latest papers on neurodegenerative disease and are currently focusing on Alzheimer's disease or AD. However, we only go through the paper abstracts and report the main objectives and findings, So if you're interested in learning about the specific methods or results from any of these papers, I encourage you to use our bibliography to look up your paper of interest. You can find this in the episode notes. If there is a specific AD topic that you're interested in hearing about but wasn't covered in an episode this month, consider joining the podcast and potentially hosting it yourself. If you're interested in joining the Aminder team, send us your CV at aminderpodcast at gmail.com and we can work together on finding a suitable position for you. We are currently releasing new episodes every Monday and Wednesday, so look out for all your favorite topics. Feel free to connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn with any comments and suggestions for the podcast. You can also leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and Spotify. We would really appreciate it as it would help us reach more listeners who would benefit from the show. We've also recently opened up a survey available till the end of April for you to tell us what we are doing well and where we can improve. Access the survey at tinyurl.com slash amindersurvey. Participants will be entered in a draw for a 15 USD gift card for any location you choose. Now let's finally get started with the summaries. I've changed up the way I organize my sections a little bit, so hopefully it's easier to follow along. We'll begin with three papers on sensory processing deficits in AD, followed by our sleep section, before we take a quick break, and then continue on with a few studies on balance impairments, then depressive symptoms, and finally end off with two miscellaneous papers. For the first section, we'll start with two papers on visual processing in AD. Paper number one is titled, Early Impairments of Visually Driven Neuronal Ensemble Dynamics in the RTG4510 tauopathy Mouse Model. It was published in the journal Neurobiology of Disease by first author Parka and last author Botta, who are both from Denmark. This paper used a mouse model of tauopathy to study the brain network activity that occurs in response to a visual stimulus, which has been suggested to show impairments from previous research but not reported as much at a single neuron level prior to brain atrophy. The authors recorded oscillatory rhythms and single-cell calcium activity of pyramidal neurons in the primary visual cortex of RTG4510 mice prior to neurodegeneration. Upon delivering a light stimulus, these neurons showed reduced responsivity and overall activity. Although cortical pyramidal neurons show enhanced basal state coactivation in this model, they appeared to have a loss of input output synchronicity. The researchers also found reduced basal theta oscillations and an increased susceptibility to the convulsive drug pentaline tetrazole in these transgenic mice. Overall, visual cortical pyramidal neuron processing seems to be impaired in the early stages of neurodegenerative tauopathy. For paper number two, we have a very similar paper also looking at visual processing in a mouse model of tauopathy. It's called dysfunction of the glutamatergic photoreceptor synapse in the P301S mouse model of tauopathy. This one was published in Acta Neuropathologica Communications by co-first authors Arouche de la Perche and Cadoni, who are both from Paris. The authors explain that phosphorylated tau deposits in AD are associated with retinal ganglion cell loss. Here, they focused on the functional impact of this link in the P301S mouse model of tauopathy. Impaired visual acuity and signals to the cortex were detected at the onset of disease at 6 months of age, and visual signals to the retina were delayed by the 9-month time point. Now, this part is a little confusing, but the authors found that the retinal output signal was delayed at the onset of light but advanced at the offset of light. They referred to this as an antagonist effect, and attributed this finding to the dysfunction of cone photoreceptor synapses, which are associated with changes in vesicular glutamate transporter expression. Impaired retinal glutamatergic synapses could be contributing to the visual deficits in tauopathies such as AD. In our last sensory processing paper, we'll move to deficits in olfaction, or sense of smell, in human AD patients. Paper number 3 is titled, Markers of Olfactory Dysfunction and Progression to Dementia, a 12-year population-based study. This one was published in Alzheimer's Dementia by first author Laka and last author Rizuto, both from Stockholm University in Sweden. The aim of this study was to identify olfactory dysfunction markers that predict dementia risk in older adults the authors used the sniff-and-sticks odor identification task to classify over 2,000 dementia-free participants into mild and severe olfactory dysfunction groups. They found a correlation between olfactory dysfunction and hazard of dementia, and participants with severe olfactory dysfunction who were also APOE4 carriers showed the highest risk of dementia. That's pretty much it for this shorter abstract. In conclusion, Olfactory dysfunction was associated with an increased dementia risk, and even more so when combined with a genetic predisposition to AD. Now, for our next section, we'll be moving into the sleep category, with three papers that discuss symptoms such as insomnia and altered circadian rhythms in either AD patients or preclinical models. The first one looks at the link between insomnia and AD biomarkers in the cerebrospinal fluid. Paper number four is from the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease and is titled Insomnia, Symptoms, and Biomarkers of Alzheimer's Disease in the Community. It is written by first author Nicolazzo and last author Pazze, who are both from Monash University in Victoria, Australia. The author set out to study the relationship between insomnia, symptom, severity, and AD biomarkers in the cerebrospinal fluid, or CSF. To do so, 63 cognitively unimpaired middle-aged participants from the Healthy Brain Project underwent lumbar puncture and two weeks of actigraphy to monitor their sleep patterns, which I believe involves wearing a device that tracks your movements during sleep. Using this method, the authors measured two of insomnia's core features, which are difficulty initiating sleep and difficulty maintaining sleep. AD biomarkers included CSF A-beta-42, phosphorylated tau, total tau, and neurofilament light chain. Increased CSF A-beta was associated with greater insomnia severity and increased difficulty for staying asleep. In contrast, initiating sleep was not correlated with A-beta or any of the other disease biomarkers. These findings suggest that increased amyloid production may lead to acute sleep disruption in cognitively unimpaired individuals. Our next sleep study, which is paper number 5, has the title Alzheimer's Disease Phenotypes Show Different Sleep Architecture. This one is from Alzheimer's Dementia by first author Falgas and last author Grinberg, both affiliated with UCSF in the US. Here, the authors were interested in an atypical form of AD called the non-amnestic variant, where patients show varying degrees of cortical vulnerability and impaired cognitive functioning memory remains intact. They were curious whether patients with atypical AD also show vulnerability in subcortical regions and if this leads to sleep dysfunction. To monitor sleep patterns, the authors performed overnight electroencephalography, or EEG, on nearly 50 subjects with amnestic or atypical AD, as well as healthy controls. As a quick refresher on the different stages of sleep, Non-REM sleep ranges from stage 1 to 3, with 1 being the lightest and 3 the deepest stage with slow wave patterns, while REM sleep is when brain activity is most similar to when you're awake. AD patients had more sleep fragmentation and stage 1 sleep than controls. In addition, typical AD patients showed worse stage 3 sleep dysfunction than the atypical AD group, while showing relatively intact REM sleep. The author suggests that these differences in sleep dysfunction phenotypes between amnestic and atypical variants of AD may be due to varying vulnerability patterns in subcortical areas. Atypical AD patients showed relatively preserved slow-wave sleep, potentially explaining why individuals with this type of AD don't have severe memory symptoms as in typical AD patients. For our last sleep paper of this episode, we shift our focus to a more molecular approach studying circadian rhythms in a mouse model of AD. Paper number 6 has the title, SARM-1 Regulates Circadian Rhythm Disorder in Alzheimer's Disease in Mice. This was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease by first author Wang and last author Li, who are both from Tianshan District in China. Now, I know we don't usually cover papers that use molecular biology techniques in my episodes, but this study does get into that stuff a little bit, so take this as your disclaimer and I'll try to explain the terms as they go. SARM 1 is a key protein that regulates neurodegenerative diseases such as AD, and here the authors aim to uncover the role of SARM 1 in the circadian rhythm impairments found in the APP mouse model of AD. The mice were assessed for cognitive function, amyloid beta plaque deposition, circadian rhythm in their home cage, and expression of clock molecules BMAL1 and PER2, which are proteins involved in regulating circadian rhythm. There was also an in-vitro component in the study, where the authors induced a circadian rhythm disorder in HT22 cells with SARM1 knockout and then assessed changes in BMAL1 and PER2. The researchers found that SARM1 rescued cognitive disorder, decreased A-beta plaque accumulation, and improved circadian rhythm and clock molecule expression in the AD mice. This protein could be useful as a therapeutic target for improving circadian rhythm patterns in AD. Hopefully you're all still awake and following along. We're at the halfway point now, so let's take a short break here before we continue on. Hi, I'm Ellen Rowe, host and co-founder here at Aminder. I've been with the team since the very beginning in 2020, and I really love it because it's an outlet to hone my own science communication skills, and I feel super passionate about the mission of making sure scientists are well informed about all of the new research being churned out. It's also super rewarding to be a part of a community of like-minded and driven scientists from all career stages. If you're interested in getting involved with our team, we are currently recruiting new hosts and content creators for the show. This is a great opportunity for researchers interested in keeping up to date with the latest Alzheimer's research and getting some science communication experience in the process. If this has piqued your interest, you can reach us at aminderpodcast at gmail.com or through any of our social media platforms, and we'd love to hear a bit about you. Nearly one million older Canadians live with a form of dementia. This number is expected to double within 10 years and sadly no solutions exist yet to dramatically reduce these numbers. It has to stop. Research can help solve this problem. We are 350 researchers fully dedicated towards preventing and finding a cure to dementia and to improve care to those living with dementia. We are the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration in Aging. The solution to dementia could be closer than you think. Welcome back, everyone. Just six papers left, so not long to go. Let's get back into it with two clinical studies on impaired balance in AD patients. Paper number seven is titled Relationships of Fall Risk with Frailty, Sarcopenia, and Balance Disturbances in Mild-to-Moderate Alzheimer's Disease. This one was published in the Journal of Clinical Neurology by first author Gunnar Oytin and last author Halil, both from Ankara, Turkey. As mentioned in the title, the study looks at the interplay between a number of variables that may impact the risk of falls in AD. Cognitive impairment is one of the major factors, and frailty and sarcopenia also contribute to increased falls in AD patients. I talked about sarcopenia in my last episode, but as a quick refresher for both you and myself, it is defined as a loss of muscle mass and strength that occurs naturally with aging. Participants were 56 patients with probable AD who belonged to either the faller or non faller category, which ended up being about 50 50 each in this subject pool. All participants completed a series of assessments to measure gait, balance, and muscle strength. Frailty was linked to an increased fall history, while AD stage, balance, and muscle strength were not, which is actually pretty surprising. Of all the measures that they looked at in this study, Frailty was the greatest predictor of falls in patients with mild to moderate AD. Next up, another paper on balance with a focus on trunk control, or the ability to control your upper body. Paper number 8 is titled, Investigation of the Relationship Between Trunk Control and Balance, Gait, Functional Mobility, and Fear of Falling in People with Alzheimer's Disease. This one was published in the journal, Irish Journal of Medical Science by first author Ozkan and last author Bora, who are both from Turkey as well. In this study, the authors looked into any potential links between trunk control, balance, gait, functional mobility, and fear of falling in AD patients. They used the trunk impairment scale and several other functional mobility tests on 35 participants with AD and a similar number of healthy controls. AD subjects showed worse balance and gait than controls, with no difference in fear of falling between the two groups. Impaired trunk control was correlated with all the other measures that they proved in this study, including balance and functional mobility, and it could be useful to incorporate trunk control applications in rehabilitation therapies in AD. Now, let's get into the next section focusing on neuropsychiatric impairments in AD, with a focus on depressive symptoms. Paper number 9 involves subjects with mild cognitive impairment and is from the journal International Psychogeriatrics by first author De Lucia and last author Feminella, all the way from Naples in Italy. The study is called Neuropsychiatric Symptoms and Their Neural Correlates in Individuals with Mild Cognitive Impairment. The goal of this paper was to figure out the association between neuropsychiatric symptoms, cognitive function, regional tau, and brain volumes in over 200 MCI patients. All subjects completed a neuropsychological assessment, volumetric MR brain scan, and PET imaging. The authors found that around 61% of MCI patients had at least one neuropsychiatric symptom, with the most common ones being depression, irritability, and sleep disturbances. The presence of neuropsychiatric symptoms seemed to impact executive functions and was linked to reduced brain volumes in the orbitofrontal and posterior cingulate cortices. All in all, neuropsychiatric symptoms emerge early on in the AD trajectory and are correlated with impaired executive abilities as well as reduced gray matter volume in specific brain regions. Digging deeper into the neuroanatomical mechanisms underlying these neuropsychiatric symptoms in MCI, is necessary in developing more targeted treatments in AD. Now, our next study was done in children with a genetic risk for AD or major depressive disorder. We rarely talk about the younger population in my episodes, so I'm interested in hearing about some of the latest AD research being performed in children. Paper number 10 is titled, overlapping brain correlates of superior cognition among children at genetic risk for Alzheimer's disease and or major depressive disorder. It was published in Scientific Reports by first author Patrican and last author Shelton, who are both affiliated with the University of Liverpool in the UK. The abstract starts off by explaining how early life adversity tends to accelerate the aging process increasing susceptibility to both major depressive disorder and AD. In this paper, the authors used data from the Adolescent Brain and Cognitive Development Genome-Wide Association Study and compared the influence of genetic and environmental factors on genetic risk scores between children who were adopted and those who were raised by their biological families. Both AD and major depressive disorder risk scores predicted neurodevelopmental changes that underlie fluid cognition, which I assume refers to executive functions such as problem-solving or reasoning. For the adopted children only, higher genetic risk scores for AD was associated with accelerated structural maturation, such as cortical thinning. In addition, higher genetic risk scores for major depressive disorder was correlated with delayed functional neurodevelopment in adoptees as indicated from the compensatory brain activation elicited during an inhibitory control task. The results are kind of a lot to process, but they tell us a bit about the genetic and environmental influences involved in the development of AD and major depressive disorder that start during childhood. To sum up, I think the most interesting finding is that there may be some cognitive benefits of accelerated maturation found in children who are vulnerable to AD development. Now just two more papers to end off the episode. Paper number 11 focuses on imitation and was done in a few different neurodegenerative diseases, but I'll mostly focus on the AD parts. It was written by first author Bonard and last author Legall, both of which are from Angers, France. The study was published in Cognitive Neuropsychology and has the title Meaningless Imitation in Neurodegenerative Diseases, Effects of Body Part, Bimanual Imitation, asymmetry, and body midline crossing. Visual imitative apraxia, which I believe is the impaired ability to imitate a visually given gesture, has been reported in dementia patients. However, existing explanations for this syndrome have been contradictory thus far. The purpose of this study was to explore the specific imitation deficits in patients with either cortical atrophy of the temporal lobes or of the frontoparietal networks, or both. The latter of which would be the AD group. The authors asked 63 patients and 32 controls to imitate a variety of meaningless postures and tested the effects of body part, bimanual imitation, asymmetry of the model, and body midline crossing. AD patients had difficulty making bimanual configurations, likely due to the complexity of the gestures rather than the fact that the pose was bimanual. The results were quite variable within each of the clinical groups, so the authors recommend that clinicians use a large range of items in imitation tests to be able to capture this variability in imitation performance. Now finally, we're on the last abstract of the episode. This one is on the act of forgetting, which I hope you haven't been doing too much of throughout the episode. It's by first author Sacripante and last author Della Sala, both from the University of Edinburgh in the UK. The study was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease and is titled Forgetting Rates of Prose Memory in Mild Cognitive Impairment. The abstract starts off by mentioning how some studies have reported accelerated forgetting rates early on in AD, while others do not share the same finding. Here, the authors hope to uncover whether forgetting rates in patients with MCI due to AD were different from age-matched controls. 29 MCI patients and 26 controls were asked to listen to a short passage and then freely recall it after either a 1-hour or 24-hour delay. Interestingly, the MCI patients showed worse encoding during immediate recall, as well as increased forgetting up to 1 hour after listening to the passage, as assessed by both free recall and repeated testing. Forgetting rates were not different between subject groups from the 1-hour time point to the 24-hour time point. The authors speculate that the MCI group might be benefiting less from retrieval practice than the controls, or they might have deficits in working memory, which would hinder their memory performance at immediate recall and up to 1 hour later. And that's it, everyone. We are at the end of another Cognitive and Behavioral Changes episode. That was a whole lot of information, but I hope you learned something new from today's wide range of papers on sensory processing, sleep, motor impairments, and psychiatric symptoms in Alzheimer's disease. Remember that you can look up any of the papers covered today in our full bibliography that we've prepared for you in the episode notes. Be sure to rate and review Aminder as it helps our volunteer-run podcast reach more listeners and also connect with us on all our social media platforms including Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. A good place to leave a review is on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, and you can also leave us a rating on Spotify. We are actively recruiting volunteers, so please send us your CV at aminderpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to find a suitable position for you on the team. I'd like to thank the sorting and management teams for all their hard work, Nyla for reviewing the script, Scott for editing the recording, Anjana for making the bibliography and Anusha for both reviewing the episode and creating the music. You can find more of her content on YouTube at AK Music or on SoundCloud under Anusha Kamesh. Lastly, thank you all so much for joining me in today's episode. I hope you learned something new and that you find this podcast useful and accessible for you and your research. We hope to have you back soon. Bye for now.